This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or on your Times Radio app. And if you're already listening on the radio, tell your friends. Coming up on today's episode is a cracker. It's part four of the political editors. Philip Webster, the longest serving of all of the politics that I've spoken to. He was political editor of the Times from 1992 to 2010. He describes getting to know Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and then chronicling their premierships. Amazing story as well about being taken hostage with Neil Kinnock. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as we always do, let's kick off with a look at the news with today's columnists. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Yes, and we say hello to Manveen Rana. Hello, Manveen. Hello. Nice to have you with us. And this week's Matthew, I think for the first time. That's right. Well, it's not the first time anyone's called you Matthew. Uh, but uh, from The Economist, Matthew Holhouse. Hello, nice to see you. How are you? I'm really well. How are you? You're very good. I've seen you for ages. I know, I know. We used to work next rooms to each other, didn't yeah. we? Down in, in Parliament. So yeah. It's nice to be here. Thank you. And then we got much sillier jobs, which required <laughs> not going to the same office every day, uh, which is much better. Um, I suppose we should start with uh, the, the story, which is all, you know, dominating the news today. The uh, the, the the plane crashed, was it crashed, was it blown up, was it shot down, and what the death of the head of the Wagner Group means, big picture, Matthew. What does it mean? It means, um, I mean, it's, it's really spectacular, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's, quite, it's quite something. I mean, this is, this is a, a rule which has always been built on the threat of violence, you know, going back to Putin's early days and threatening to wipe out Chechen terrorists and you know, some really dreadful assassinations of journalists and uh, politicians, people like Boris Nemtsov. Um, but really, I, I, there's brilliant analysis by a guy called Mark Galliotti, who's a, a really brilliant Russian analyst in The Spectator this morning, where he argues that this really is a, a new era of assassination and, and so really spectacular assassination of somebody who's, um, you know, the, the nature of Putin's rule was that he always was always for a long time able to manage these sort of disputes, these internal factions through the combination of, of you know, corruption, electoral fraud, and so on. And, and what, what, the, um, what 
uh, Prigozhin's mutiny showed was that the, his ability to manage those disputes was falling apart under the pressures of the war. And so this does look like a you know a spe- you know really quite spectacular attempt. You know if it indeed is an assassination to to reimpose that discipline through you know uh, brutal and spectacular in public violence. I mean Galeotti's argument is is that ultimately this exposes the weaknesses in in Putin's uh, regime and that you know some of the elites will be now wondering actually are they still safe and better off sticking close to Putin. I mean the big the big picture is you know let's let's put this in context. This is all a result of of the war in Ukraine. This was a, a war launched by Vladimir Putin. It appears in the belief that it would you know uh, cement his place in history as a great Russian leader and and create this sort of this perverse idea of this greater Russia, and that the Ukrainian state would disintegrate on contact. You know, it would fall apart within days and they'd install a puppet regime. And what's happened? The yeah. Ukrainian nation has never looked more sort of vital and alive idea. There's been a, a you know, phenomenal coalescing around the Ukrainian government um, and President Zelensky. And it is Russia which has you know, been thrown into chaos. We've seen these rival factions, doubts about Putin's longevity. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a warning from history, isn't it, about, yeah. about what happens if you, relation, yeah, na- yeah. if you go to war against your neighbours and, yeah. and the chaos you sow within, within your own system. It's also what it just tells us about Putin's judgment and grip, Manveen, that this didn't happen immediately after the coup. In fact, there was this sort of weird business where they sort of seemed to kiss and make up and they were going to rub along nicely and he was just going to go off and retire somewhere. Um, For some reason, Putin suddenly decided, right, no, no, he's got to go now. And it just suggests again his sharpness, his grip, his, his control isn't what it was. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone sort of expected this to happen for a while, you know, from the moment that there was an attempted coup, from the moment, to be honest, even before that, when Prigozhin started quite openly insulting Putin and saying that he wasn't very effective anymore in his videos from the battlefield and looking like he was the one really running the war. Um, you know, it, you, you knew that couldn't go on for very long. And then you had the attempted coup. You had Putin sort of saying this was treachery betrayal and there's if there's one thing he 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 can't put up with it's exactly that um so it was only a matter of time but we had this weird period in the middle you know if you think back to um a similar circumstance in turkey when they had an attempted coup erdogan immediately within 24 hours had locked up anyone who could have had anything to do with the coup um and as a you know weirdly having almost lost power having almost had a coup against him came out looking stronger than ever looking absolutely unassailable and with putin you sort of had this mad circumstance where russians were killed during this attempted coup and yet everybody who was involved in it was allowed to walk away scot-free there was no punishment for them at all um prigozhin went to belarus and then we found out very quickly came back and had a three-hour meeting in the kremlin during which he was you know putin very publicly said this he sort of said he had demanded that there was a change of leadership in wagner and they didn't listen so you know putin looks weaker and weaker and weaker um and it you know it starts to look inevitable that something has to be done if if putin's not to look like he's completely lost control um and you know we've had a series of just just 2 days ago prigozhin put out yet another video he's on the ground in africa on the very day that putin is addressing the BRICS summit in south africa but he can't do it in south africa because there's a, a, an arrest warrant for him from the international criminal court so he's having to do it by a video link looking quite weak um and there's Prigozhin looking yeah, vital yeah, and on the ground and yeah. he's the one who is doing what Putin can't. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of 
you know, Prigozhin really was pushing it. There was a lot of sort of a, a red flag to a bull um, in in the last few weeks. So it it did feel like it was only a matter of time. But it's still spectacular that it's yeah. happened. Uh, and I'm not sure it's I'm not sure Putin looks as strong as he had hoped at the end of it. And in practical terms, Matthew, in terms of executing the war in Ukraine, mm. um, the Wagner Group under Bogosian was doing a lot of the heavy lifting. In fact, the whole point of the coup was him to say, look, we're not getting the support that we need, we're not getting the, the, the equipment, we're not making the progress and the gains that, that we should be making in Ukraine. So if you remove him and presumably now the Wagner Group from that war effort, given that they've just lost their leader... That actually makes the ultimate aim of, of taking back Ukraine even harder, doesn't it? it I mean, it, it, it raises all sorts of questions, doesn't it? I mean, this is... I mean, we, we shouldn't um, underplay just what a um, vile group this was. I mean, yeah. this was uh, a group that became notorious for sort of... It's, it's a Wagner group was effectively a, a, a mercenary group mm. uh, that was uh, used by to do a lot of the Kremlin's dirty work, so in Central African Republic and Syria, and originally raised to, to fight, you know, the, the first invasion of Ukraine in, in 2014, became absolutely notorious for, uh, you know, uh, war crimes effectively, Be- became notorious for um, the use of sledgehammers to kill people, to kill prisoners, including in Ukraine, uh, linked to beheadings, all sorts of... Um, Ghastly things that the Prigozhin reveled in, and and it became a bit of a, um, uh, a, a he became a bit of a folk hero actually, and had some support in Russia yeah. amongst this sort of uh, nationalist faction that think the war should be prosecuted more aggressively. That think that you know they're fighting with one hand tied behind yeah. their back, and and this is the sort of the faction that Putin has to manage now, who who yeah. actually regard Prigozhin as a hero. Uh, there were messages sent out on their Telegram channel saying that you know we must we will avenge this, and this is a, a terrible yeah, mistake. Yeah. And so, he's got, if anything, he's just fighting on another front. Well, we'll we'll obviously keep across uh, any further developments and any any further facts, which are obviously quite hard to come by in this whole uh, whole story. Uh, let's come back close to home and talk about um, British politics now. Nadine Doris, uh, who yeah, I don't need to remind you, announced she was going to resign with immediate effect, and then unresigned with immediate effect, and it's been going on now for. Two months, I think. She hasn't spoken. It feels a lot longer, Matt. She hasn't it feels spoken. a lot longer. <laughs> she hasn't spoken in the comments for much, uh, much longer. Yesterday on the show, Tory MPs have been lining up telling her to clear off. Uh, this was the Tory MP Caroline Noakes telling me that Nadine Doy should stick to her word and resign. Well, you know, she shouldn't have the Tory whip if she's made it plain that she no longer wishes to be a Conservative MP but can't st- take that final step towards resignation. I think she needs to crack on and do that. And then Damien Green, uh, former Deputy Prime Minister, also said she wasn't doing herself any favours by hanging on. Um, well, I think, I mean, Nadina said she's you know, going to resign immediately, then then, then do it. I think it's, um, for, for her point of view, I mean, despite the fact, I, you know, I have I've had many political differences with Nadine uh, over the years. But but as, as a person, I like her a lot. And I, I just think she's she's not just damaging Parliament. She's damaging her own reputation as well. I think, having said she, she's going to go, uh, it would be in everyone's interest if if she just went. Well, she did. Then finally, we did hear from her. She sent a statement to the News Agents podcast saying, "Myself and my team of four caseworkers are working daily with constituents. I understand that political opponents such as Labour-run Flittick Town Council are choosing the summer and the news-hungry outlets in the summer recess to be noticed. However," We are just getting on with the work. 
going to ta- going to war with one of your own town council seems quite uh, extreme. Uh, we did actually ask Nadine if she'd like to come on. Uh, we haven't heard back. Any idea where she is, Matthew? You know, it's, 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 it's quite something when, you know, you've got Conservative MPs deciding that it would actually be better to have a by-election against the Lib Dems in a, you know, a pretty safe heartland Conservative seat when you're 20 points behind in the polls than have Nadine Dorries uh, around any longer. I mean, that, that, I mean that, that's what you might, you know, that, that is a lose-lose situation. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's it's bad. It's, this is really so. Stephen Bush has a, has a very good column, I think, in in the FT, where he um, a bit of uncharacteristically tabloid turn refers to Rishi as rubbish Rishi, and yeah. he says the problem with Rishi Sunak isn't that he's too soft or too aggressive or too this or too that. He's just comes across as kind of ineffective and that there's a whiff of decay and ennui, and you know it's time yeah. just to sort of tuck him up. And and, and if if. If there was sort of one symbol of the idea, which will be very powerful at the election, yeah. that these guys are basically done and they've had 13 years and it's time for a change, yeah. the fact that you've got Nadine Dorries <laughs> basically not doing very much yeah. and her own MPs Dossa calling Dorries. it for Dossa, Dossa Dorries. Dorries. You know, it, it's just yeah, that yeah. sense that it you know, yeah. might be might be time to move on. That's, 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 very, that's very dangerous for Yeah, and Manvin, it was interesting, actually. We spoke to uh, Henry Hill from Conservative Home uh, earlier in the week, and he'd... Because people say, well, what could Rishi Sunak do? Well, it turns out he could just lay a motion in the House. It's not used very much. In fact, it's only been used since the 1950s. But you could just lay a motion in the House, and MPs would vote to expel one of their colleagues. And you can't even think, we've sort of reached the point now where... And actually, I mean, it might even help Rishi Sunak in the by-election if he could go and say, look, I knew you weren't being represented, so I got rid of her so you could have a Tory MP instead. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I I think Matthew's right. It would just make him look more effective, which he doesn't here. And, you know, you've got this, you know, this weird position where it's, it's not even Labour who's calling for her to go you know, quite as loudly as, as it is the, the Tories. Uh, you know, you, you had two of them on yesterday. This morning, you have Nick Gibb doing the rounds, supposedly talking about GCSEs. And, and, you know, there is a very serious issue he should be talking about. Everybody's asking him about Nadine. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think he managed to say, uh, I just think people should do what they say they're going to do. And I think that is actually key because yeah. she sort of becomes this albatross for the party where everyone looks at her as a prime example of how politicians, the Tory party, whatever, don't do what they say they're going to do. You know, to go into yeah. another election with her and then to, you know, hear any promises and sort of think, well, you're going to stick by them. It, it's just very unconvincing. Yeah, the mistake was um, her to say that she was going to resign immediately yeah. and, then, and, then, and then not. But I'm, I'm also I'm, terribly entitled and, you know, a bit out of touch because, you know, she's clearly put her constituents last in all of this. This is all about why she didn't get a peerage. And I think... That's quite hard to sympathise. Yeah, and the with. fact that um, uh, several people have pointed this out, but she's she, she's no longer she no longer describes herself as uh, uh, Conservative MP for uh, Mid Bedfordshire on her Twitter account. She's just recovering Secretary of State, Sunday Times bestseller, Talk TV Friday night with Nadine eight pm. Although not at the moment, uh, we've not seen her in the building. And uh, Daily Mail Tuesday columnist, and then the email address is for her agent, not for her constituency office. Phenomenal. So there we are. Now, let's turn our attention to the important question of Rishi Sunak's pin-up. Uh, we've got some details of uh, the artworks that senior politicians have hung on their wall. James Hill uh, from The Spectator has got the inside track and joins us now. Hi, James. Hi, Matt. Um, so just uh, take us through it then. What, uh, <laughs> what do politicians have on their walls? 
Right, so this is a free information request to the House of Commons. And basically, obviously, ministers get two offices in Westminster and Whitehall, one in their, their ministerial office, but also one in their parliamentary office. And it's great because it means that finally you can see actually what the shadow cabinet hang on their walls as well. Um, and basically, the parliamentary art collection uh, meant to be kind of a sort of great artwork from the nation's um, sort of heart of the nation's literature. And we occasionally add paintings to them. So if you walk around Portcullis House, you'll see more modern politicians like Diane Abbott, Tony Blair, pictures up for instance but really looking at this uh, i think i was struck most of you by how sort of uncreative they all really were i mean mastering as i say in the article is mastering the art of politics is one thing but the politics of art is, is quite another um, and i think the most intriguing one uh, was uh, ed Miliband's selection of keir hardy a picture of keir hardy to hang in his office perhaps a reminder of labor's past at a time when some fear they're moving to the right uh, <laughs> so take us through some of that. I mean, the the one that stands out seems to be Alex Chalk. Yes, Alex Chalk putting on his wall. Uh, Spencer Percival, of course, unlike America, where there have been four presidential assassinations, we've only had one prime minister to be assassinated. Um, an infamous occasion when a constituent, disgruntled constituent, uh, waited in the Commons um, lobby and went and shot him. And Alex Chalk uh, has chosen as a picture of this to hang up in his wall and sort of perhaps a, a worrying portent of what's the fate to, be call, uh, to befall a sort of rising Tory star. Um, but it was rather an interesting one. And I think what it's telling is how often ministers and shadow ministers do select things that basically match their interests, either their subject matter or where they come from. Um, and so Rachel Reeves also has selected um, a piece of um, uh, suffragette propaganda. Um, so what a woman may be and not have the vote, you know, the sort of famous one where women are depicted doing all sorts of achievements in the early 1910s and not having the vote. And I think that sort of representation of some of the motivating factors behind her politics uh, as well. Manveen, who would you have on your wall? Did you have peculiar pinups? No, no, I can't say. I feel like I'm very boring now. Um, I was, I was more intrigued by Michael Gove and Grant Shapps, though, who had nothing. Um, Just I massive mean, what, pictures of themselves, probably. I know. <laughs> <laughs> themselves, Margaret Thatcher, and the Queen, probably. Yeah. Well, they've all got a picture of the Queen. What about you? What about you, Matthew? I, I had a, I had a large poster of my journalistic hero, Matt Chorley. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> um, Not that much younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, no, I think I think it's great. You know, there's this. Um, you know, we, we've gone through this phase. There's a real sort of penny pinching culture in, in politics. You know, you know, you see that they've spent twenty p on paper clips and all the rest of it. Yeah. And I think it's. I think this is good. I think you know, the government art collection. You know, they buy up a lot of sort of rising stars. You know, they buy sort of Tracy Emmons, and I, I think yeah. it's good. You know, I think I think it's right that the state. You know, shows these things in the MPs' offices. And it gets rotated back. James, um, what would you have, having looked into the art collection? Well, I mean, very nicely, the government art collection actually, um, two weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, had um, a tour for some journalists behind the scenes because they're planning to make it public. And it's a great sign because obviously, I think only about a third of the artwork is ever on public display and they're always rotating collections. Um, and I was really struck by one thing, something, one thing the curator said to me, which is that when ministers are deciding what to use in the, to hang in their offices, it's not just the artwork themselves, it's about the history of that particular artwork. Because of course, these paintings are taken all around the world to embassies across the across uh, different parts of uh, you know Britain's high commissions and embassies etc um and also it's about the stories behind them and so some some ministers for instance would love to have a picture that once hung in mark thatcher's office when you know, oh, she was yeah. a secretary of state 
um, or, or prime minister. And so I think for my personal one, I mean, I saw a really immense portrait of um, Queen Victoria, which is about sort of 11 foot high. And I really like the kind of, um, you know, sort of uh, got a grand impression. I think there's a bit of power play in ministerial selections going on. So um, a few years ago, did a similar story and um, Gavin Williamson has selected Oliver Cromwell, a picture of Oliver Cromwell to hang in his office, which I thought was uh, rather striking. And always uh, I remembered that detail. James, I could see over your shoulder on the Zoom, you've got a framed bar chart. Oh, God. I do, oh, God. Um, I, mean, I didn't realise. Um, yes, that is Sales and Spectator. Sorry, that is not a flex, I promise. You know. <laughs> oh, it's Sales and Spectator. Okay, fine. It's not your own not your own personal Twitter following. No, no, no. Oh, okay. oh God, no. This is um, pay rises. Bank it doesn't monitor my progress that yeah. closely, hopefully. It's, your, it's your Monzo bank account uh, screen grab. <laughs> Matthew Holhouse from The Economist there, and of course, Manveen Rana from Stories of Our Times. And you can catch Manveen on the Stories of Our Times podcast, One Story Told in Depth Every Day, wherever you get your podcast from. Up next is The Political Editors with Philip Webster. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. I don't think that other people in the world would share the view that there is mounting chaos. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. It is time to put up or shut up. A new dawn has broken, has it not? This is a decisive moment for the world economy. Now the decision has been made to leave, we need to find the best way. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I have been repeatedly assured that there was no party. Growth, growth and growth. Some mistakes were made. Half a century of politics told by the people who wrote the first draft of history for The Times. This is The Political Editors. On this episode, Philip Webster, the longest-serving political editor from 1992 to 2010. On the rise of Tony Blair, the fall of Gordon Brown, and being taken hostage at gunpoint with Neil Kinnock. I'd made it my business to make myself known to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. And I know they, uh, they both did trust me. Sometimes Blair shook his head and said, I wish I hadn't trusted you. It was easily the tensest situation I'd ever been in after writing a story, because had I been wrong, probably wouldn't be talking to you now. 
So we were locked up and treated as if we were criminals. And uh, led by Neil Kinnock, we sang Jerusalem. And the soldiers patrolled round and round the hut with their guns while we prayed for rescue. What a time to become political editor. In 1992, Labour on the march to power, and then they weren't. John Major, the man who wasn't going to win anything, suddenly wins a surprise election. And you're, you're right in the thick of it as political editor of the Times. Absolutely. It was a wonderful time to take over. I'd been heavily involved covering the fall of Thatcher. But yes, the shock victory for John Major. It became clear in the last week of the 92 election that there was a chance. I remember going to watch Neil Kinnock speak in uh, Blackburn and was standing at the back uh, with Glenys Kinnock, uh, who I knew well, obviously I knew Neil Kinnock well, and he just wasn't firing. Everybody expected him to be prime minister within a few days. And uh, I said to Glenys, what's, what's wrong with Neil today? And she, she said to me, he's, he's worried. We're, we're not absolutely sure we're breaking through. And she turned out to be quite right. So we were into that period of John Major taking over and then hitting trouble almost straight away. Black Wednesday within months, the party in total revolt. Sleaze started coming out everywhere. I have made it clear from the very outset that these matters must be properly examined. Why else would I have set up the inquiries? Many people criticised me for doing so and said, why have you done this? You could have brushed it aside after a week of parliamentary difficulty and it would all have gone away. I didn't do that. And why didn't I do that? Because I happened to care about the reputation of Parliament in the short term and the long term. He was having the roughest time possible. And it was the most miserable five years for, for John Major and the, and the Tories to endure, during which time, of course, Blair and Brown were just building up their plans for leadership and, and for government. At what point did you think, okay, these are the guys I need to get in with? Did you spot them because you were around Parliament for such a long time, you know, when they first became MPs in the 1980s? Was it when they got onto the front bench? When did you realise that these were the politicians you needed to to get to know? I think I'll be quite honest with you here, Matt. It was when Peter Mandelson told me, these are the two guys you need to be watching. (laughs) (laughs) And and Peter told me a lot of things that were, uh, were right over the years. I knew Peter very well. He was director of communications. And it was quite obvious that at that time he saw in Blair and Brown, who both came in in 1983 together, Labour's route back to power. Who is best? Who can who will play best at the box office? Who will not simply appeal to the traditional supporters and cu- customers of the Labour Party, but who will bring in those extra additional voters that we need in order to win convincingly? It's really interesting, the, the Peter Mandelson question, because... Almost every politician thinks that they would be a better leader. Do you think there was any point where Peter Mandelson thought he could be the the man to be the front man of this modernised Labour Party? It's interesting that he always seemed to have an idea of what it should be and opted for Blair as the right person to deliver it, rather than pushing himself. Absolutely. I think he, more than anyone, knew that he would never be the person to do it, but he wanted to be the person to engineer the leader of New Labour. He knew he wasn't the kind of guy who was ever going to get the loyalty from the membership that would be required and then from the voters. But he certainly knew in his own mind what Brown first, there's no doubt, he saw Brown first of all as a potential leader. 
But then Blair, after they'd done a few years working together, he saw in Blair the guy who would take Labour to victory. As it turned out, he took him to three victories. And you pulled off quite a clever trick, if you like, by being friends with both the Blair camp and the Brown camp, which as the time passed when they were in government after winning in 97, became increasingly important. How did you manage to pull that off rather than being seen as you know, a Blairite reporter or a Brownite reporter and getting, getting the tidbits that came with that? Well, I knew the dangers of being seen to be in with one side or the other. And therefore, it was always my, my aim to be trusted by both sides. Now, it so happened that I was very, very friendly with two of the leading figures uh, on either side, in the sense that Ed Balls was a, a lifetime friend. We come from the same city of Norwich. We support the same football team. We'd always been close friends. We played a lot of football together. He's a lot younger than me, you'll quickly say, but we played in the same football team for quite a long time. And Alistair Campbell, a very good friend. He'd been in the lobby with me. We grew up knowing each other as young journalists in the lobby. So I, I know I was trusted by both sides. I'd made it my business to make myself known to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. And I know they, uh, they both did trust me. Sometimes Blair shook his head and said, I wish I hadn't trusted you. But um, I'm glad to say uh, if I run into them now, which I do occasionally, it's always very friendly. Okay, let's talk about some of those things you alluded to. Peter Mandelson and the Euro, it's hard to imagine now in a post-Brexit age for lots of people that the the big debate that once dominated British politics was about whether or not we would join the Euro. And Tony Blair wanted to, Gordon Brown didn't, and you spent probably many hours you wish you could get back chronicling the ins and outs of that debate. Yes, it was an amazing period in 97. Blair had come on able to do anything, really, he felt. And he, I think, saw the possibility of going into the euro early in his term. The FT ran a story in August of of 97 saying that Blair was on the point of launching a move to get Britain into the euro. And when that story dropped from the Financial Times that night, I rang a certain source who was the football friend that I mentioned to you earlier and said, what do I do with this? Uh, He said, if I were you, I wouldn't follow it. From that moment on, I knew there was a hell of a story around because if Blair wanted to go in, quite clearly Brown didn't. You know, this might be a story that either ended up with us going into the Euro or Gordon Brown resigning. So I set about trying to get that out into the open. And and I did it in a very strange way. I I persuaded Ed Balls, but mainly Charlie Whelan, who was then uh, Gordon's press spokesman, to get Gordon to do an interview with me on a Friday afternoon when, knowing what I know, uh, I'd put questions that I thought might well be able to uh, get me to a point where I could write that we were not going to go in the era (laughs) without a fight. (laughs) And... um, the words he came out with were enough for me to write that Brown and Blair were not going to go into the euro in the first term of a Labour government. And that was a market-moving story, if it were right. It was a market-moving story if it were wrong. And the story came out on the Saturday morning. I did the interview on a Friday. 
Alistair Campbell was aware of the interview, but again, he didn't know what was going to be said. Blair tried in vain to find Alistair when the first edition of The Times dropped. Charlie Whelan, as we know, had placed himself in the Red Lion in uh, Whitehall. Oh dear, you know, I don't normally get calls off Tony Blair, so I went outside the pub, found a little private spot. And, so you did at um, least put your drink down to take the call from Tony Blair? Well, no, I might have had my spritzer in one hand. But, you know. <laughs> when contacted by other journalists, he merely said, Phil Webster is a very good journalist and put the phone down. So the story rang, ran, and it's up on my wall at home. Blair rules out membership of the single currency, and there it was. Saturday morning, I get a call at home from the said Mr. Mandelson saying, Philip, over the years, you've spoken to me a lot. And when you've spoken to me, what you've written has been right. You will find that what you wrote today will be wrong. And talk about getting a chill going down the back of your neck. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, my God. And it was 10 days before Brown himself stood up in the House of Commons to confirm the story that I'd written that Saturday morning. Barring some fundamental and unforeseen change in economic circumstances, making a decision this parliament to join is not realistic. And to his credit, Peter Mandelson came up to me in the lobby that morning. I was down there at about half 11. He said, Phil, you're going to find that your story is being stood up this afternoon by Gordon. I sort of knew it was, but it was nice to hear it from Peter Madison <laughs> as well. It was one of those, it was easily the tensest story uh, or the tensest situation I'd ever been in after writing a story, because had I been wrong, probably wouldn't be talking to you now, Matt. You know, it was, <laughs> it was not a story to get wrong. The, the markets hated it, of course. Uh, and when my story appeared on the Saturday and the markets opened on the Monday, Gordon Brown was at an event at the Stock Exchange, as it happened. And as he switched on this brand new system in the, in the Stock Exchange, everything went red. <laughs> and that were the, the market's falling. So I think Gordon must have thought, what have I done? What have I done? You did do a good trade in market-moving interviews, Phil. That one was at the very early days of the new Labour government. You then did one, you were on the... On the golf course, as you often were, I think, on the golf course, the 14th hole, and you got a phone call. Would you go and do an interview with Tony Blair, which accidentally or deliberately ended up hastening his departure from power? Yes. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt that the purpose of the interview was to elongate his stay as Prime Minister. It was the last day of August in, uh, in 2006. He'd already said he would go, but the Brownites just couldn't wait any longer. They wanted to get their man in straight away. Uh, yes, I was on. Uh, I was at a Sheringham golf course in Norfolk, and I got the call from David Hill. Can you come down tomorrow and and interview the Tony? And uh, I said, Yeah, sure. And I'd fully expected to be given the story that the forthcoming conference that September, so just a few weeks later, was going to be his last. And as I walked into Checkers, and really no fripperies, I thought, I'll get straight to it. So, you know, is the conference going to be your last one, Prime Minister? Why on earth are you asking that, Phil? He used to call me Phil. Why on earth are you asking me that? And I said, well, there's been a hell of a lot of speculation that it will be your last. And he said, well, it's certainly not the case. And no, the next conference wouldn't be his last. And I must have asked that question eight or nine times. I could see David Hill, who was watching the interview, and Jonathan Powell, 
Even my friend, Mr. Riddle, I could feel was feeling slightly uncomfortable at the number of times I kept asking the same question. And Blair himself, who's got an extraordinary patience, finally said, Phil, I think this one's the last time, don't you? And said, look, I'm not going. My successor will be given ample time. And I thought, my God, that's a better story than the one I thought I was going to get. <laughs> and, um, and basically and, all hell then broke loose with people who thought well, yeah. he was going to go suddenly enraged that Tony Blair was still planning to hang on. Yeah. What happened then was the story appeared. Blair defies party over leaving date was the splash headline in the Times. Over in Birmingham, a number of Brownites were having a meal. It became the Balti House plot. And in the days that ensued, one frontbencher after another resigned the government saying they, they no longer wanted to serve Tony Blair. And within a few days, he did a stand-up uh, interview for, I think, Sky, in which he, yes, said it would be his last conference. So it was an interview that precipitated his, uh, his fall, I think. The truth is you can't go on forever. That's why it's right that this is my last conference as leader. And then obviously, it, having given his successor, as he promised, uh, enough time, were you surprised, having seen the rise of Gordon Brown as a backbencher, then a frontbencher, then as Chancellor, seen him up close so much, were you surprised then that someone who'd hankered after the job of Prime Minister for so long seemed to struggle in it? Yeah. I didn't think he'd have as rough a time as he did. But in my view, he took the job far too late. By then, three terms of Blair, and it was almost in the same position as Major after three terms of, of Thatcher. The country was beginning to tire of Labour. Had he done what he was advised to do and gone for a, a very, very swift election, if you remember, Matt, there was a foot-and-mouth outbreak in 2007, not long after Brown took over. He was deemed to have handled it extremely well. He was in the honeymoon period of his leadership, uh, and he was very popular. Uh, Gordon Brown is not a gambler, but had he gambled and gone for it then, I think he probably would have won. But instead, we had three years of trouble. Uh, you know, we had the banking collapse, everything although he was again deemed to have handled that reasonably well, the country was not in a mood to re-elect Labour again in, in 2010. I've heard a lot of people say that if Blair and Brown had carried on in the same jobs, they might well have got another term. But that's something uh, we'll never know. So your time as political editor sort of ended with a messy, messy Labour government, economic turmoil, heralding a decade or more of a, of a Tory Prime Minister in uh, Downing Street, which actually is how you started. You started in Westminster in the early 1970s as a press gallery reporter. Take us right back to that time, and how much did the job, not just the politics, but how much did the job change? Because you were there for such a long stretch in terms of the, the technology, your access to politicians, and the way you went about reporting on politics at the time. The technological changes in my time were massive. The biggest of all, of course, was the way I got my copy across to the office. For years and years and years, wherever I was in the UK, covering by-elections, travelling with a prime minister, I had to find a phone. 
And I remember with Margaret Thatcher in the, the 1983 election, I was on her battle bus and uh, we, were, we were getting a bit fed up. We'd been on this bus for, seemed like, weeks and we didn't see much of her in terms of talking to us. And one Friday afternoon, her staff said, OK, we're going to Newbury Racecourse. The Prime Minister will give you a full rundown on how she sees the forthcoming G7. And a platform had been erected. She stood up there as if she was making a speech to several thousand racegoers. In fact, there were about 30 journalists. And she came out with a lot of rather aggrandizing stuff about how she was now the longest serving leader and she was she would have a big influence at the forthcoming GA. We rather mischievously saw this as Thatcher decides to conquer the world type story. We thought we'd got some good stuff. But we of course, 83, no mobile phones, what did we do? So we persuaded our bus driver, please driver, can you stop? at Reading and we'll jump out of the bus and try and find some phones. And that's what happened. He pulled up, he's a rather gruff driver, and he said, you've got half an hour. And if you're not back here in half an hour, you'll have to find your own way home. And uh, we jumped out of the bus and just ran (laughs) and ran and ran. I was pretty fast. I got to the station. I knew there'd be um, phones there. I phoned my copy over, you know, that's just to take over the world and ran back. About four of us made it. And we then pleaded with the driver to wait for the rest, and he wouldn't. And he off he went, drove back to London, and most of the guys had to find their own way back uh, on the train, having filed their, filed their copy. So it's just one example of the madness that you had to go through in those days. Once with Neil Kinnock in the African bush, we'd got the most wonderful story when we were, uh, we'd landed in the wrong airstrip in Zimbabwe, and there were three or four young soldiers there with Kalashnikovs. Uh, They didn't look old enough to have guns. There we were with uh, the red-haired leader of the opposition. He was wearing a bomber jacket and he was swearing his head off uh, and expressing fury at the way his his travelling party, his wife and press officers were being treated, as well as the way we, the journalists, were being treated. And they, they couldn't understand a word. Uh, even if they could have speak, spoken English, I don't think they'd have um, understood much of what uh, Neil Kinnock was saying. So we were locked up and treated as if we were criminals. And uh, led by Neil Kinnock, we sang Jerusalem in this hut. And the soldiers patrolled round and round the hut with their guns while we prayed for rescue. And after a couple of hours, by then it was getting dark, we saw some lights coming down the mountain. And it was the uh, British High Commissioner's welcoming party, which had been at the correct airstrip, not the one that we landed at. Uh-huh. And uh, <laughs> I'll never forget when he arrived and apologised to Neil Kinnock for the, for the way we'd been treated and held up. So I had this wonderful story, Kinnock held at gunpoint in the African bush, which was in my head and I couldn't wait to file it. But what did I file it with? There we were, stuck in, a, in the middle of nowhere in Zimbabwe. We took a decision amongst the only 12 of us, and we said, look, we can't file. There's no way of filing. Let's every man for himself when we get to the hotel. And we went to a place called uh, Inyanga. And again, the, we were, the first people off the bus were the people who got the phones. And that was the only way of getting the story across. Today, it would have been a mobile phone job. That's the big thing that changed in my time. 
I just want to ask you, during your, your time at the Times, you covered, what, seven prime ministers? I mean, you had nine editors in that time, so I don't know what that says about journalism or politics. <laughs> Did you feel like you became friends with any of those prime ministers? And is that a problem with, if journalists become too close? There is a problem, I think, if you become too close. I wouldn't say I was friends with any of them. I mentioned Ed Bolt. There's no doubt that he was a friend, but he was a friend before he got anywhere near Gordon Brown, and he remains a friend today. I mean, I became very friendly in his early days with John Major. He came in in 1979, so he was an up-and-coming backbencher when I took my first steps in the lobby in 1981. And I made, yes, I made friends. I, he became a contact, but, contact, but enough, to, enough to be able to ring up on a Sunday, you know, the game, Matt, uh, and say, look, what do you think is going to happen this week? You know, what do you think will happen with this bill or that? But the, the higher the MP goes up the uh, greasy pole, the, the, the less easy it is to have those kind of friendly relationships. And you know that you're soon going to be writing stories, material, that they're just not going to like. You can't afford to treat them as bosom friends. You can have a friendly relationship with them. I certainly had very friendly relations with Major, Blair, Brown, and David Cameron. There's no doubt about that. I'm not ashamed to say that. But were they close friends? Of course not. But they were people who I could ring up and have a conversation with and uh, probably could today. And that was Philip Webster on an extraordinary career reporting politics for The Times. Of course, you can read all the latest political news from The Times. Just go to thetimes.co.uk and subscribe right now. And if you want to read some of the stories we've been discussing with the political editors, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash archive. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.